Good morning. Matthew 20, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The word of the Lord. Do you ever say, hey, that's not fair? I know that's kind of a silly question. Um, we may not say it out loud every day, but regularly we hear or read or see things that make us mad. And one of the main reasons it makes us mad is because that's not right. That's not just. That's not fair. We all have this impulse for justice and we always just assume that other people share that same impulse for justice. The interesting thing is they always do. We all agree on certain standards of justice and fairness. So, for instance, human rights. You know, the abortion debate centers on who gets human rights. But that debate wouldn't even be possible if we didn't already agree on the existence of human rights. As human beings, we operate according to an intuitive moral logic that just assumes that there are certain standards of justice and fairness. Now, here's the important um, part about this for us this morning. Um, as long as we're doing our part to make this world a better, fairer, more just place, then we feel like we deserve at least a certain measure of recognition and reward, because that's fair. But here's the danger, and maybe you've noticed this in others. Maybe you've even noticed it in yourself. Um, if other people are not doing their part to make this world a better place, or even worse, if we think they're um, actually making this world a worse place, what do we feel? 
we feel better than them. We feel superior to them. That superiority is like a seed. And it sprouts up out of the ground of justice, which is a good thing. But unless we don't keep that seed in check, that seed of superiority will grow up into an oak tree of self-righteousness, hatred, and destruction. Now, maybe you're virtuous enough that that would never happen to you. But for the rest of us mortals... How do we keep that seed of superiority from growing inside of us? And even more, what if there was a way to replace that seed with a completely different seed, a completely different life, one that's not only passionate about the good of this world, but is also passionate about um, the rescue and renewal of people we think are actively opposing the good of this world? It's hard to even imagine wanting a life like that, isn't it? But Jesus in this parable is showing us a picture of that life. So let's walk through this picture, this parable, and see three things that Jesus shows us. He shows us an unexamined picture, a shocking reversal, and a new story. There's an unexamined picture, a shocking reversal, and lastly, a new story, okay? First, Jesus shows us an unexamined picture. To understand this parable, we need to understand how it fits in the larger story of the Gospel of Matthew at this point. So in the previous chapter, um, there's that famous story about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Sell your possessions, give all the money to the poor, follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. And that guy walks away sad because he can't do it. And Jesus very famously says how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Peter and all the other disciples are standing there. They're watching all of this, and their minds are spinning. And Peter says, see, we have left everything and followed you what then will we have? This is an understandable question. Peter's saying, Jesus, we've sacrificed everything. Are you going to take care of us? And Jesus tells Peter, Peter, everyone who leaves their home and their family and their land to follow me will, will receive a hundredfold, and on top of that, they will inherit eternal life. It's this incredibly gracious promise that Jesus gives to them, but then he follows that with this very cryptic statement. He says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then he tells this parable. Now that's the setting, but what is Jesus saying? He's saying, Peter, you have this concern, and it's an understandable concern. You have sacrificed a lot, and before everything is finished, you're going to sacrifice a lot more. So I want you to know that it's going to be worth it. You are going to experience a life in the kingdom of heaven that is beyond anything you can imagine. But Peter and all of the rest of you standing here, be careful about your heart. Be careful. Why? That's why he tells this parable. It's pretty simple. It's about a landowner who goes out to the marketplace at six in the morning to hire some workers for his vineyard. And he tells um, them that I will pay you a denarius. Now, a denarius was the average daily wage, and that was what was considered fair. But then throughout the day, he keeps going back to the marketplace, hiring other workers. 
And he tells them, I will pay you whatever is right. So it's not a specific price that he names with these guys. He just says, I'll pay you whatever is right. Now that word right um, is a word, literally it's the word for justice. He's saying, I will pay you whatever is just. Now the last workers he hires, they only work for one hour. And then at quitting time, all the workers line up to get paid. And the landowner begins with the workers who only worked one hour. And he pays them a denarius. Which means that the people who worked all day long, they see this and they're thinking like, man, this is awesome. We're going to get even more. But then they get a denarius too. And they're hacked. This is what they say, uh, or this is what it says. It says um, that they, they began to grumble against the landowner. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. I mean, they're mad. And by the way, this word grumble is a word that shows up throughout the Old Testament to describe the Israelites during the wilderness. God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, but while they're in the wilderness, God is never doing things the way they want him to do things. They want to be in control. They have an agenda. God is not operating according to their control, according to their agenda. And so they're always grumbling against God. Grumble, 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 grr. And when Jesus uses this word, he's very intentionally using it because he knows that it's like a hyperlink in the imagination of his Jewish listeners. They know Jesus is talking about grumbling against God. So what's at the heart of these workers grumble against the landowner? After all, they agreed to a denarius, and that's exactly what they received. So what's the problem here? Well, they tell us what the problem is. They say, these who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. You made them equal to us. The problem is they feel superior. In fact, notice Jesus says that, that when these came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. They had an expectation based on their comparing themselves with these other workers and feeling superior to them because of what they had done. They're saying, hey, we worked harder and longer. We made a bigger commitment. We made a superior sacrifice. We did more, therefore we deserve more, and anything less than that would be a denial of justice. Friends, Jesus is getting into our hearts here. Do you see what's going on? They had an expectation they had this seed of superiority that was growing into their hearts. They had this unexamined picture of the world that, that says that, um, that's always comparing themselves with others and then that feeling superior to others because we feel like we did more. We worked harder. We deserve more as a result of that. There, this unexamined picture that's always comparing themselves with others. Do you ever do that? We all do. We all do that. We all have this unexamined picture of the world in which our standing, our identity, our worth and value as human beings in this world is constantly being measured by how we compare with other people. For instance, no one ever described this better than C.S. Lewis. In his book, Mere Christianity, he said, people are not proud of being rich or clever or good-looking. They are proud of being richer or cleverer, or better looking than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud. Once the element of, of competition has gone, pride has gone. 
It's the comparison that makes us proud. It's the comparison that makes us feel superior. Friends, Jesus is saying, this is what he's talking about when he's talking about the first and the last. You know, um, we all have this um, instinct to divide the world into the first and the last. And then, of course, we always um, put ourselves in the category of the firsts, right? And even if, um, and there are lots of different ways that we do this, different categories we do this in. Maybe it's financially or with money, so we say that the rich are the first and the poor are the lasts. But if you're not rich, we'll do it in some other way. Maybe social standing. We'll say the elites are the first and the nobodies are the lasts. But if you're one of the nobodies in, in society, maybe we do it with virtue. We can all do it with virtue. We could say the good people are first and the bad people are last. And of course, we all put ourselves in the category of the virtuous good people. We're the firsts. Not like those bad people. They're the lasts. We have all these different ways and categories in which we divide the world into the firsts and the lasts, and we're always putting ourselves in the category of the firsts and then comparing ourselves with others and feeling superior to them. So, for instance, David Brooks is a New York Times columnist and best-selling author. In one of his books, he talks about the difference between what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the kinds of things, well, you put them on your resume. Things like your awards, your accomplishments, your titles, your degrees, your salary, your golf score, your body fat percentage, whatever it is. And it, have you ever seen people boasting and comparing themselves with others based on resume virtues? Sure. Now, we all recognize that these are very superficial things, which is why David Brooks goes on to say that there's another category of virtues, what he calls eulogy virtues. So, for instance, um, when you die, nobody is going to stand up at your funeral and talk about your GPA or how much money you made or what your top score at Minecraft was. Instead, they're going to talk about, were you kind? Were you caring? Were you loving? Those are eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are all about what you accomplished. Eulogy virtues are all about what kind of person you were. Friends, Jesus is warning us here. Because even if you devote yourself to being a virtuous, kind, caring, loving, sacrificial, generous person, Jesus is warning us about the danger here that, that we could take this and even in our virtue we would feel superior to others. He's warning us about that seed of superiority. That little voice inside of us that says, hey, I'm one of the virtuous ones. I'm one of the good ones. I'm one of the ones who gets it, not like those losers over there who don't get it. We all have this unexamined picture in which we divide the world into the firsts and the lasts, and we instinctively put ourselves in the category of the firsts and feel superior to others. It's that seed of superiority, and if we don't do something about it, not only will it destroy us, it'll destroy the world. And that leads to our next point. Jesus has shown us an unexamined picture, but next he shows us a shocking reversal because this parable is not only showing us something about ourselves, it's really showing us about God. Remember, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like this landowner. He's talking about God here. And then at the very end, he gives us the big summary message of what the whole thing is about. He says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And we just saw the first and last are human categories, but what does Jesus mean by this? What's he saying? It sounds like he's talking about a reversal, but what kind of reversal is he talking about? 
Well, let's go back to this conversation that the landowner has with the workers who worked all day. Remember, they're angry. They worked all 12 hours, but then the people who only worked one hour, they got a whole denarius. And so these workers, are, they're grumbling. They're angry at the landowner. So what does the landowner say to them? And remember, this is God, really, who's talking to us. He says, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Now, this word unfair is the same word that we saw just a little bit ago when the landowner said, hey, I'll pay you whatever is right. It's, it's the same word. It means justice. The landowner, God, is really saying, this is not a reversal of justice. You, you worked, you deserve what you get, and I'm, I am not going to pay you a penny less than what you deserve. This is not a reversal of justice. So what is it a reversal of? Well, friends, here's the key. Look with me. The landowner goes on to say, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And that word envious, literally it just says, is your eye evil? In the ancient world, an evil eye was a euphemism for envy, jealousy, bitterness, and resentment. But the real key here is this word generous, and literally, it's just the word good. In other words, God is saying, are you envious because I'm good to others? Are you bitter and resentful because I'm good to others, people you don't think deserve it? Do you see what's happening here? This is not a reversal of justice. It's a reversal of our expectations. God is saying, I am reversing your expectations that that what I give to you is based on what you do and how much you deserve it. It's not based on what you do and it's not based on how much you deserve it. Here's the message. It's saying God doesn't give to you because you're good. He gives to you because he's good. It's not a reversal of justice. It's a reversal of our expectations. Friends, Jesus is getting into our hearts here. We have this expectation because we're always comparing ourselves with others and feeling superior. And even if we think, no, I don't do that, if we're really being honest with ourselves, we do do that. We all do this. We compare ourselves. We feel superior. And as a result, we feel like we're better than others. But Jesus is saying, that's not the case here. We, we have this expectation because we feel better. We compare ourselves to others and we feel better than them. But what if we're not as good as we think we are? You know, there's a deep irony in this parable. When the workers hired first, when they say, you made them equal to us. Why are they mad? They feel like they did more. And therefore, they're better than, they're superior than the people who did not do as much. They're superior indeed. But what if they are all equal, just not in the way they think? In other words, what if God sees you and me and looks at us and sees us all as equal, not in deed, but in need? What if God sees us equal in need? Think about it. Where did each one of these workers begin in this parable. They all begin standing in the marketplace in need of someone to invite them into his vineyard. 
They're all equal in need there. Jesus is pointing to our seed of superiority, that we are all standing in need of forgiveness, of redemption, and of healing from the seed of superiority in our hearts. Now, that is a difficult reality to embrace. In fact, it can be a traumatic reality to embrace. Have you ever heard of Adolf Eichmann? Eichmann was the guy who built the death camps that killed millions of Jews in World War II. In 1961, they captured Eichmann and brought him back to Jerusalem to stand trial. One of the people they called to testify in the trials against Eichmann was an Auschwitz survivor. Auschwitz was one of the most infamous death camps. A guy named Yehiel Denur. You can actually watch his testimony on YouTube. In the um, testimony, Yehiel Denur was testifying about the horrible things that he experienced in the death camps. And you can see that Eichmann is is sitting right there in a bulletproof glass booth. And while he's testifying, Yehiel Denur, all of a sudden he shrieks, falls out of his chair, and just collapses on the floor. He's so overcome that they actually have a couple of guards who have to come pick him up off the floor and set him back in a chair. It's incredibly dramatic to watch. Years later, in 1983, Mike Wallace interviewed Yehiel Denur on 60 Minutes. You remember 60 Minutes? Um, And he asked him, hey, what happened to you at that time? He said, why were you so overcome? Was it hatred? Was it fear? Was it having to relive all of these horrible experiences? And Yehiel Denur said, it was none of that. I was afraid for myself. I saw that I am capable of this that I am exactly like Eichmann. I saw that Eichmann is in all of us. Friends, if somebody like Yehiel Denur could say something like that about himself, where does that leave the rest of us? We all have this seed of superiority in us. We all feel like, um, like we're um, superior to others. We don't see that we're equal to others in need, not in deed. And as a result, we don't see this shocking reversal of the kingdom that shows us a God who who loves us not because we're good, who loves us because he's good. You know what that is? That's grace. If we all have this seed of superiority in us, then what do we really deserve? Justice. If God shows us grace, though, here's the question. How can God show us grace and that's not a denial of justice? The answer is grace is not a denial of justice. It's a transfer of justice because the debt of justice doesn't go away. Grace means that somebody else pays the debt. You know, a, a, a denarius, a daily, an average daily wage is not an astronomical amount of money for the person receiving it. But think about a business owner who's paying this to multiple, peri- uh, multiple people over an extended amount of time. That is an astronomical amount. If you think about it, uh, a business owner, somebody who hires people to do work that doesn't really need to be done and pay them for work that they didn't even do, you know, you could maybe do that for 10 people for a week or so, and you'll be okay. But if you do that for 100 people or 1,000 people for a month or a year or for an even longer extended period of time, anybody who runs their business like that is not going to be in business very long. That is an astronomical burden to take upon yourself in order to care for others. 
The only way somebody could do that is if they have infinite resources. The only person, the only being in the universe that I'm aware of that has those kinds of resources is God. You know, when Peter told Jesus, Lord Jesus, we have left everything for you. I can only imagine what was going through Jesus' heart at that time. Peter, you've left everything for me? Jesus is the God of the universe who left an eternal throne. He is the eternal Son of God who left the Father's love. He's the creator of all things, who left the riches, joy, glory, and honor of heaven in order to hang on a cross and bear the burden of our debt and the heat of God's justice so that we could receive a a gift that none of us deserve. Friends, we all have this seed of superiority in our life. That, That grace is not a denial of justice, it's a transfer of justice. Jesus took the debt, um, paid the debt that we Uh, ought to have paid in order that we could receive entrance and welcome into God's kingdom, the vineyard of his kingdom. We all have this unexamined picture of the world in which we divide the world into the first and the last and we automatically put ourselves into the first. But the gospel is a shocking reversal of that. It shows us a God who doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us because he's good. And that leads to the last thing Jesus shows us here. We've seen an unexamined picture Jesus has just showed us a shocking reversal. But lastly, we see a new story here. Because if this story is true, what Jesus is showing us in this parable, what does that actually mean for our lives and the way we live? Let me just draw out a few implications for us. Very briefly, this is going to sh- it shows us a new story about God, a new story about yourself, and a new story about others. Okay? First, this shows us a new story about God. It's really easy for us to have these pictures of God, uh, especially a picture that says, if you're a good person, if you're kind and caring and loving and sacrificial and generous and all this stuff, then God will love you. That is a very traditional religious picture of God, but this parable explodes that picture, shows us a God who doesn't love you because you're good. He loves you because he's good. And understand, do you think um, God wants you to be good? kind and caring and loving and sacrificial and generous? Of course he does. I mean, after all, the landowner invites people into his kingdom in order to serve, in order to work. But here's the thing. Our growth in holiness and virtue and goodness and sacrificial service to others, none of that is the condition for God's love in our life. It's the result of God's love in our life. God gives us his forgiving, healing, exculpating, renewing, redeeming love. First, he gives it to us by grace because of who he is. In other words, this picture of God, it's not like this um, creepy, domineering, Santa Claus kind of God who sees you when you're sleeping and knows whether you've been bad or good. That is a terrifying picture. A God who shames you into being good under threat of punishment wouldn't be good himself. Jesus is exploding that picture. He's giving us a picture of God that is worlds away from that picture of God. He's showing us a picture of a God who's generous and gracious to you apart from anything you've ever done. So especially if you're exploring faith, um, we can have all these distorted pictures of God. Maybe it's based on dysfunctional churches we might have grown up in. 
or a limited understanding of the Bible or, or, or from things that we may have heard other people say about Jesus in the Bible. But I would encourage you, be a good researcher and go back to the primary source. In other words, when was the last time you read one of the Gospels all the way through for yourself? Have you ever done that? And if you have, have you done it in, say, the last five years? You might be surprised what you see. You might be surprised who you meet. This parable gives us a new story about God. But secondly, it gives us a new story about yourself. Remember, the landowner goes out and he sees people standing in need in the marketplace. It's another way of saying that, that God sees that seed of superiority in you. He sees your envy, your jealousy, your bitterness, your resentment. He sees your selfishness, self-centeredness, self-infatuation. He sees your self-absorption. He sees all of that. And here's the thing. All of those things describe us. They all describe, you know, the realities about our life. But the gospel shows us a picture of a God who doesn't love us because of what we do and how good we are. He loves us because of who he is and how good he is. In other words, if you're a Christian, um, you can be honest about all of those things, and all of those things describe you, but none of those things define you because what you're really defined by is the love of God. We live in a culture that is constantly telling you that you must define yourself. You must define yourself. That narrative is killing us, literally. The more we double down on this idea that you belong to yourself and you must define yourself, the more anxious, depressed, addicted, lonely, and suicidal we become. What would it be like, though, if... Um, if instead of being defined by what we think of ourselves, if we could simply be defined by what God thinks of us. Friends, grace means that you can be honest about yourself because you're secure in the love of God. It means that you can be honest about your life, your story, about the horrible things that may have happened to you, about the horrible things you may have done. You can be honest about all of that, but not be controlled by it, not be defeated by it, and, and most of all, not be defined by it because you're really defined by the love of God for you in Christ. Dear ones, this parable gives us a new story about God. It gives us a new story about yourself. But lastly, it gives us a new story about others. Because remember, Jesus is showing us that seed of superiority in our hearts and our lives, that seed of superiority that causes us to compare ourselves to others and feel superior to them. It distorts the way we see other people so that instead of looking at others and seeing ourselves as equal in need, we see ourselves as superior indeed. But the gospel obliterates our sense of superiority to others. I'll never forget... Um, how this came home to me once, um, pretty early on uh, when I was a Christian. I was a newish Christian. I had been following Jesus maybe four or five years at this point. And I was at a support group for people in recovery, not a Christian group. And there was a gentleman who was sharing, and he started talking about Jesus. And he was saying things about Jesus that were not just ridiculous and outlandish. He was saying things that really, I mean, they were scandalous and wicked and deeply offensive. And I felt that grumble stirring inside my heart. Grumble, 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 grr. 
I, that seed of superiority started sprouting and putting out shoots and leaves. There was all kinds of nastiness and bitterness and judgment in my heart. I was thinking all kinds of horrible things about this person. But at that point in my life, I had been going to a church for several months at that point where I was regularly hearing the gospel of grace preached in a way that I hadn't really heard before. I was a pretty new Christian. And as a result of that, I wasn't really aware what that was doing to me, but what was happening was the grace of God was starting to do things to my heart. It was starting to do things in my heart. And I'll never forget it. I was sitting there thinking all these horrible things, scorning this guy. When It felt like God himself was speaking to me. And I, it was like I heard God saying, Eric, the only reason you believe in Jesus and this guy doesn't is not because you're smarter it's not because you're better than him. It's not because you're the one who gets it and he doesn't. It's not because of any of those things. It's because of my grace in your life. This person that you are scorning in your heart is a human being created in my image and an object of my deepest affection. How dare you sit in judgment of him? At that moment, I'll never forget it. It was like gospel chemotherapy on the cancer of superiority in my heart. It was just kind of just doing a number on that tumor in my heart. Now, I wish I could tell you that um, the cancer has been eradicated, but unfortunately, there's a lot of superiority left in my heart. But friends, do you see what this parable is showing us? We all have this unexamined picture of the world, a seed of superiority in our hearts because we have an unexamined picture that divides the world into the firsts and the lasts and automatically puts ourselves into the firsts. We feel superior to them. The gospel shows us a shocking reversal of that by showing us a God who doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us because he's good. The more that story takes root in your hearts, the more you begin to live in a new story about God, a new story about yourself, and a new story about others. Has that story taken root in your hearts? It'll change your life. It'll change the world. Let's pray. Abba, we thank you um, for your um, kindness to us, to, to show us hard, difficult, challenging things about ourselves, but in a way, Lord, that is so loving so kind, so gracious. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even when you um, move into our hearts to address difficult things in our lives, you do so in a way that begins with an assurance, with a promise, with grace, and then you move in and you start working in our hearts. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to receive this picture, to enter into this picture, and to, um, and to let this story of grace, the shocking reversal of your kingdom, take Take root in our hearts and change us. May it give us a new picture about you, God, a new picture about ourselves, and most of all, may it give us a new picture about others because we've experienced not a denial of justice, but the transfer of justice through your death on the cross, Lord Jesus. For we pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Friends, we're going to receive our offering this time. Uh, if you're new, we don't pass a basket here due to health and safety concerns. There is a basket in the hallway. Um, the easiest and most convenient way, most people just go to our website and there's a give page there where you can give. If you're a regular member or attender here, this is really a, a time for us to partner together in our vision as a church. Our vision is to see a city made new by the gospel spiritually, socially, and culturally. And so uh, we partner together on this. Uh, I want to thank you ahead of time 
uh, for your continued generosity. However, if you are new or visiting this morning, we want to invite you please to remain our guest and our visitor, not feel any obligation to give financially. Instead, let us know if there's any way that we can serve you. We have a page on our website. Um, we retitled it from COVID-19. It's just called CARE now. If you're in need of anything, if you're in need of care, go to our website. There's information there about how you can get in touch with us. Let us know if there's any way that we can serve you at this time. It doesn't have to be COVID-19 related. Any way that you're in need. Um, but for all of us, this is an opportunity to um, reflect, to, um, to spend maybe a few moments in quiet and um, listen to Jesus and how he's working on that seed of superiority in all of our hearts. Let me pray for us, and then our wonderful musicians are going to play. Father, we thank you for these gifts and these offerings that people give so sacrificially. Lord, we pray that you would multiply them and use them that many others may come to experience the transformation of life and community and society that is available only through Jesus. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.